0: Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. We are family. What does it mean to be family? Last week, there's three things. First of all, God wired all of us to be in relationship With others. He's wired us for that. You go right back to Genesis. There's so many things. We talked of some of that last week. We're wired for it. Here's the other thing about family. Family is about for better, for worse. When I do weddings, we come to that part, you know, in sickness and in health and and all that kind of stuff. The idea behind that is for better, for worse. So I'm not just in it for your money. You know, I don't. I told Lori, honey, if you married me for my money, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not, it's not, you don't marry for the money, hopefully. It's more. For better for you don't just marry for the high times. You're gonna have a lot of low times, and and so you're in it. I'm in it for good times, and I'm in it for the bad times, for better for worse. Families are in it for better, for worse. And families also, it's worth fighting for. I'm going to say there's a lot of things we fight for in this world, but I think really one of the top things we should be fighting for is for our family. The families, the family unit, the nuclear family, uh, it has come under attack that there has been such disintegration of values on our family. We have to work very proactively. Fight for the family. Now, your biological family, fight for your family. It's worth fighting for. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Um, it can be tiring. It can be exhausting. You can feel like you're all alone, but continue to fight for your biological family and fight for the family, your church family. Fight for the family of God. Uh, I don't. I don't know outside my biological anything greater to pray for than to pray for your church family because together there is things happen that are eternal. But when it's separated, also things happen that are negative for eternal. and We don't want that. It's important to fight for the family. So today I want to just take the last part, talk about, and we're focusing here, yes, biological family, but we're focusing on the family of God, the church family. We are a part, Cornerstone Church is a local expression of a worldwide movement. The worldwide movement is followers of Jesus. That's the worldwide movement. And we come in different stripes, Different, we call it denominations or fellowships. And not all of them are followers of Christ. You know that. Some adhere to religious principles but have ceased in personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that personal relationship, that means we surrender my will to his will according to scriptures. There are those who call themselves the church who are not. But there are those of many who call themselves the church who are I am thrilled to be a part of a worldwide, kind of. I know there's different movements calling themselves Worldwide Church, but the idea that we are a church that is around the world, the body of Christ, followers of Jesus around the world. I don't claim that the fellowship here at Cornerstone has the only corner of truth. I believe together with my brothers and sisters, we help each other to be the body of Christ. So valuable, I was on a Zoom this week again with some of my colleagues from town of different fellowships. And we were on a prayer Zoom on Thursday and one of them jumped right in and, and shared a need that is happening in his church right now among the leadership. And he says, guys, here's the situation here. What are your thoughts? And then immediately, that becomes a part of our sharing together of different strengths. We're, different, we're not of the same denominations, but we're followers of Jesus and we value the input that we have for each other. We won't always see eye to eye, and that that can be good as you do it in a healthy way. And that's really what we're trying to get across here. Here's the problem. Too many times in the biological family and in the church, when things don't go the way we hope, we look for greener pastures over the fence. And might I say the greener pastures over the fence aren't always greener. How many can say amen to that? (laughs) Some of you came here and you thought we were greener. And then after a while, it's like, well, they're not that green. You know, it's always interesting. You know, I I hear occasions, you know, wow, we're so excited, you know, in the first few weeks or months joining your church. And I'm happy for that. I really am. You know, because the other one really stunk, you know, and this one was horrible and that one. And I'm thinking, how long is it going to be before that's said about us? Because frequently, unless there's healing, it's difficult to reintegrate back into the new. There's something about what it is to be the family. So we need to talk about it. It's not a topic that we just get. It's not propagated outside these walls, typically. So this is, a. I think, it should be a safe place to talk about what does it mean to be the family. The Apostle Paul, the early church, said, you need to have examples so that you can follow them. And I pray that my life, I want my leadership in the church, and I say this with my elders and those who enter into leadership team who teach, That your life needs to be such that you can say to people around you, follow me as, want to finish it for me? Follow me as I follow Christ. We should be able to say that. We shouldn't be of those who say, follow Christ, but don't follow me. Our life needs to exemplify what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. doesn't mean we're perfect. Oh, far from it. As a matter of fact, often in our imperfections, by us walking the journey, letting others into the journey of how we work through our imperfections, is one of the healthiest ways to say, here's what you do when you run into problems like I just ran into. And I'm learning along with you. And so, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul would say this. With Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. Okay, he kind of covered it all, didn't he? Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. He said later, Philippians 3, he said, Join together in following my example. Note this, brothers, sisters. And just as you have modeled, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He says, Listen, you need to have examples. You need to be examples of followers of Jesus. Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Note that part. Watch their life over. You can't, tell a person's, you can't tell the fruit in a person's life quickly. You have to see how that fruit develops over time, if it's good fruit or bad fruit. That's why you don't gravitate quickly. You, over a period of time, you keep an eye on it. You watch. You hold it up against the biblical pattern. And as it proves true, then follow. That's what he's saying here. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life and then imitate their faith. You need to have godly examples that you can imitate. I wish there was such a thing as a perfect church. And I think there's a cry for the perfect church. And I mean the local expression. I mean, our Lord is perfect, the head is perfect, but the body is a little flawed. I was talking to a few of our seniors this morning and one had a problem here in the body and another a problem here in the body. And as my mom told me a number of years ago, she says, it's not fun growing old. Lori and I, when we, were, when we go down, sometimes down south and we're at the pool in Florida and it's in a retirement <laughs> community. And so, you know, the average age, my son would say the average age is 90, but he always exaggerates but it's probably 75 to 85, the average age. And, and, and you listen to them, you know. And, and most of the conversations is around their doctor's appointments. And I was like, you know, all we bump Lori is we have got something to look forward to, hon. We, you know, what did our doctor do last week? You know, you know? And, and we want that perfect place. We really do. And that place that has no problems Uh, We want services that inspire us. We want worship that moves us. We want ministries that connect our kids in a powerful way. We want to be recognized and known by the staff and leaders by name and the details of our lives. Overall, we want a church that is effective and well-run and filled with people who don't disappoint. But, inevitably, we do disappoint we're tempted then at that moment to move on and find that perfect church. And I'm just going to tell you that, you know, you're going to keep looking because we are an imperfect people growing in Christ. And I pray less and less flaws and more and more like Jesus, but that is his church. If you recognize that, would you say amen? Okay, that's us. That's us. You know, sometimes when when I'm challenged with this, Here's the question that comes to my mind. If the entire church looked just like you, how healthy would we all be? And that kind of, oh, the entire church, if everybody looked just like you, if your involvement, if your compassion, if your justice, if your giving, if everybody was like that, how healthy would we all be? And maybe that's a bit of a reality check. I want to share, starting off today, three characteristics of real God-honoring spiritual families. And I think this may be a good reminder the next time something doesn't go perfect. I think these are good reminders. First of all, what families do, families love each other no matter what. They love each other no matter what. I grew up with two older sisters. They were a fair bit older than myself. My oldest sister, she was I always called her the bossy one, and she still is. And uh, she, um, you know, she she would put me in my place over and over and over again. It's one thing for my my for them to put me in place. It's another thing for somebody else to try to put me in place. They were very protective of their little brother, and so when somebody on the school bus started messing with me, they showed up. When somebody in the neighborhood started messing with me, they showed up. And I always found it kind of curious. I was a little confused as a, you know, a little gaffer. I was a little confused. How come you can do it, but they can't? You know, I would always say, well, you, you stop them from speaking like that to me, but you talk to me like that too. And there's kind of like, well, we're your sisters. We can do that. Right? It's family. We understand. It's family. You fight for your family. Listen, you can't get away with that kind of stuff because we love each other. No matter what. Others aren't allowed to do that. Not in this family. They're not allowed to do that. And I think, yeah, the family of God. Sometimes we can be cruel in our attitude and words. Not necessarily to, but even behind the back of another. It's unbecoming of a family, isn't it? Unbecoming of a family. God help me to love each other no matter what. In other words, you can't do anything to make me stop loving you. Now, I might stop liking you. But you can't stop me from loving you. I'm gonna believe in you. I'm gonna stand in your corner. I'm gonna contend for you. You can't stop that. Refuse to let you do that. I, I remember as a kid, remember spilling your milk? You know? How many times you spill your milk? And it annoyed my mom and dad. You know, for the hundredth time we told you don't set it at the edge of the table. And pretty well everything they told me, I told my kids. And I'm sure I'll tell my grandchildren, too. Don't set it at the edge of the table, number one. Don't fill it too full, number two. And move it back so when you're flailing your hands, you don't hit it, right? Those were the things they told me. And, of course, I, most part, forgot and spilt milk all the time. Here's the thing. Although I spilt milk and I no doubt annoyed them, They never stopped loving me for spilt milk. You know what I'm saying? Their love didn't diminish because I spilt something at the table. Jeremiah 31 tells us that God loves us with, everybody say it together, an everlasting love. Boy, let's just say that together. God loves me with an everlasting love. Can you say it together? God loves me with an everlasting love. God loves me. Make it personal. Say it again. God loves me with an everlasting. You can't do anything to remove him from loving you. He loved you before you were born. He loved you in your conception. He loved you in your growing up years. He loves you and it's eternal. Everlasting, he says, it's right there. Never stop. Loves you with an everlasting love. And because love is not an emotion, love is a choice. I choose. It's an act of my will. I choose to love. So when people fail, you can still love them. It's possible. If you're waiting to let yourself be connected to a people who are perfect and who will never disappoint, you're going to wait a long, long, long time. The devil is the enemy of relationships. The devil will use any opportunity to divide the family with hurts and wounds. He operates in that level. He did it from the first family and he's doing it to the final family. I go back to the topic I shared back in May 1st, a month ago. I I preached a message entitled The Language of Love. And if you go back to that message, I took the scripture 1 Corinthians 13. The entire message was on the love chapter. And the last verse we talked of is verse 7. Love always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always Always perseveres. The picture here is families love each other. No matter what. The body of Christ. God, I settle in my soul. I love, I love one another. No matter what. And it can be challenging. But no matter what, love is a choice. Secondly, families help prevent problems from happening. It's one of the problems we have today that wasn't there 100 years ago. A hundred years ago, I grew up on a farm that was over a hundred years in the Lucas name, and so when my parents, when, when my dad, because that was his farm, when my dad went to school, he went to school with his aunts and uncles and cousins. They went to school at the same school. Nobody really moved any farther than five or ten miles from home. I mean, they, you were and and prior to that, that was very typical. So we've had in the last century become very mobile. We're a global society. So families move off. Here's one of the big problems. We're going to school. We're hanging out. We're doing things with nobody who has a family connection to us anymore. And things are done without that correspondence, without that somebody keeping an eye on you. You know, it held you accountable when your brother or your cousin was there. Because they're going to tattle on you. If you do that, they're going to go home and say, do you know what he did? You know, and it holds you accountable. But when there's no accountability, we tend to be a little too free. We feel that nobody's watching. Families help prevent problems from happening. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Let's pick it up. See to it, brothers and sisters. So he's talking to family, right? Brothers and sisters. That none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But here it is. Encourage one another every day. As long as it is today, so look every day, so that none of you, he's not willing to let one go, none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. I mean, this writer to the Hebrews right here understands that families help prevent problems. When I'm a part of a family, when I put my roots into a family, I help, I am helped and assisted from not going too far astray, from not drifting. That's one of the reasons people do not want a church family. It's one of the reasons people show up every three weeks, every four weeks, every two months. They do not want to be accountable. That's a pity. It really is a pity. Because you need accountability. And you need to also be a part of the accountability to each other. To get involved in relationships. To hold into account one another of how you're doing. So that we do not veer off. We do not wander in our faith. It's one of the reasons Lori and I, are under deep conviction coming out of this pandemic, are starting her, the women, myself, the men, starting in September, men's and women's ministry, to meet every single month. Because we know, ladies, you've got stuff you've got to talk through. And guys, we got stuff. We're not talking about it, but we better, because it's messing so many men up. We've got to get together and talk. And by the way, guys, when we talk about it, we're going to do it over bacon and eggs. Yes, best conversations over bacon and eggs. Women, you can have your fruit. <laughs> Families, preventative, preventative. Um, let me, let me do. It's called preventative care. You've heard the expression preventative care. Uh, let's talk about your car. Uh, I'm going to suggest probably all of us, if not all of us, came here by a vehicle of some type. Maybe you own a vehicle. Some of you didn't. If you have a car, SUV, truck, whatever, however you drive, whatever it is you drive. You can buy it off the car lot, and you can drive it until it drops. You know, go ahead. Do that. That's up to you. Or or your car will last a lot longer if you do what they call maintenance on your car, regular maintenance. Not when the tires fall off. Before the tires fall off. There's regular maintenance. There's things that if you have a a manual in your car, you can look to it, and it has intervals that the manufacturers suggest you do these at these intervals, and it will keep your car, for the most part, running well. So you can have that car last a lot longer by technicians. You take it in for your regular maintenance. Preventative oil changes, tire rotations, changing the coolant, changing your filters, certain things that you just keep changing on your car and it will keep it healthy so that it doesn't, you know, the wheels don't fall off, so that it's in a healthy state so it can last longer. That's called preventative care. Church, it's the same way. In the body of Christ, it is much harder for the little problems to become the big problems if you share regularly when they're little. We're following, right? When we are part of a group that's talking of the things going on in our lives, when they're little, they tend not to get big. But when we have nobody that's pacing with us, they get big. There's not somebody there to challenge. Not somebody there you're sharing with and believing together and working it through. In this passage of Hebrews chapter 3... Did you note the language? It says brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. This is family language. And it says you are called to encourage one another. Family, encourage each other. Now, what does that word mean? Well, here's what it means there. It means to comfort, to console, to exhort, to admonish, to persuade. I'm going to do that again. To comfort, console. Now, those are nice ones. But the other one, exhort, is a little rougher. To admonish. Sometimes you got to persuade. Families help each other out by encouraging one another, which in turn prevents a host of problems. I believe many problems, if not all, can be solved in the context of a body, whatever that body is, if we just nurture it enough. It's when we don't. When we hide. When we go it alone, when we don't see maybe the value of this, that the problems become too big. The third one here is families are restorative. When a family member goes astray, we just don't say adios. It was good knowing you, you know, my sister, brother, whatever. We don't say that, not a family member. We just don't turn our back on them when they go astray. Likewise, when things don't go as planned in a spiritual family, We need to have the courage to fight for relationships. Too frequently, we jump the fence. But fight for those relationships. Remember, the devil constantly strives to separate us because he knows if we increase in numbers, we are strong. So what do you think his tactic's going to be? Absolutely divide them up. Then they don't have the strength to fight. They don't have the strength to stand true to each other. So, what families do. You know, we exist in a battle. The second thing I wanted to share here today, we exist in a battle. We are in an active battle. You know, I've learned early in life, don't declare peace when you're in the middle of a battle. Because if you drop your arms too quick, you die too soon. There's a time for peace and there's a time to fight. Lori and I, for almost 18 years, lived just 15 minutes from a military training base called Base Borden. Many of you have heard it. Maybe you've visited it. It's a very interesting military military base. We drove through the base uh, almost on a weekly basis. Military base. We had people in our church, part of the military, rolling in, rolling out, trainers and recruits. Being, a part, being quite fit, within 15 minutes to the military base near Angus, Ontario, being about 15 minutes from the military base... Uh, Where the church was, it was not uncommon to, at least every day, once every couple of days anyway, you'd see military vehicles go by the church. And they seldom ever went one at a time. They typically were two up to, they could be up to a dozen or 15 of them going across and they just, military vehicles going down the road. You just, you got used to it. At first it was kind of eerie. And then at a while it was, we're near military bases. What's going to happen? Occasionally you saw the military movement. We lived for a number of years right back. We were about a, about a kilometer from the perimeter of the base. It's a large training base. And it was not uncommon at nighttime. Typically around 1 o'clock, you would, like, the house would vibrate. They were setting off bombs. And, and you would feel your place. And it happened every occasion. Every occasion. At first, we were a little alarmed by it, wondering what's that. And then we realized, and after you went outside, you'd see flares and stuff going up. Really cool. It's kind of like, you know the 4th of July, any time in the summer. But you're near a military base. You expect Occasionally, there's going to be activity because of where we're located. Now, that's life in Canada near a military base. I remember the first time Laura and I visited Israel, and we noticed a very curious thing in Israel. There were soldiers everywhere. And it was a little alarming to see so many soldiers you go to get a cup of coffee, there's soldiers. You go to get on a bus, there's soldiers. You, you see children moving from the beginning of school day to the end of school day, a line of children walking, and the first teacher has a rifle, carrying a rifle, and the last teacher, she's carrying a rifle too. And it's like, whoa, everywhere there are soldiers. And there are soldiers everywhere in Israel for two fundamental reasons. Number one, Israel is in a country that actively sees war. Every week, almost every week, there is a battle taking place that's involving Israel. And secondly, military service is compulsory in the nation of Israel for both women and men. So what does that mean? Every person in Israel, if you are an Israeli and have membership in Israel... You must, between the ages of 18 to 20, you are mandated to take a year and serve in the military. And as a result, the whole population in Israel is either going to be a soldier, is presently a soldier, or has been a soldier. Everyone. Everyone. And then... After you've been trained and you go back to whatever vocation you are, every year you are mandated to spend one month training with the reserves to refresh you as a soldier. You are ready if and when the next attack comes. They are all soldiers over there. It's not uncommon to walk into an Israeli household and notice a military pack of weapons by their door And an assault rifle leaning up against their door. It's not uncommon to go into a home and see that military pack. Why? Because when the alarm sounds, you've got but minutes, everybody turns into a soldier and they move out. It's quite incredible. It's a little frightening, to be honest. They are all soldiers. In their daily lives, they never forget who they are and where they live. They can't. What a picture, beloved. We are not called, you and I are not called to be fearful. You and I are not called to be anxious. We are not called to be paranoid. But we are called to be constantly vigilant. Constantly be on guard. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, looking to whom to devour every day. We're not fearful. We're not anxious. But we need to be vigilant. We are in an active battle array on planet Earth. Ephesians chapter 6 says, For our struggle is not against people, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers in the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. But the good news is this. We don't have to fight this battle alone. You do not have to fight this battle alone. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse twelve. It says, "Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves." You ever seen on TV when they have you know the, those battles and there's only two people and they got a bunch of people coming at them? What do they do? They go back to back, so that you can actually. But if you don't have that person, your back is available, is vulnerable you be picked off. But two, now all of a sudden you, you, you can now, you have a 180 peripheral of your enemy. Now if there's three of you, you've just reduced that down again. You have a much better way of defending and winning. And that's the, that's the Ecclesiastes 4. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. Oh, a cord of three. Not quickly broken. I like it. We see this in the book of Nehemiah. If you go to the book of Nehemiah, a book named after this guy who stepped into a situation where the nation of Israel came back from having been destroyed in a battle. They come back to their homeland, and they begin to rebuild their lives. They build the temple of worship. But they just don't know how to get their lives back to what it was. They need to get a wall, a fortress, a place of security, their identity around their city. Year after year, decade after decade goes by, and they're just not doing it. And Nehemiah becomes alarmed by this and he steps into this and he calls them back into the place of finishing the task. The task was immense. It was arduous. There was so much work to do and so few of them to do the work. They felt like it's just ominous. How can we do it? Sometimes I feel like that in the house of God. I feel like that when I look around and see such things in our day. God, how are we going to do it? And then he reminds me of such stories. Add to that they were constant. the Israelites were constantly threatened by their neighboring countries. The progress ground to a halt. They moved into survival mode. I wonder here today, how many of you have moved into survival mode? You're just trying to get by another day. I think God really wants to take us to the next place. Move us out of survival mode, God, into the offensive mode to take back what the enemy has stolen. Nehemiah, he would lead a rebuilding project. He posted guards by day and posted guards by night that would meet whatever threat came their way. And he encouraged them, don't be afraid, he said. And then he turned everybody, just like Israel, he turned everybody into soldiers. Everybody turned into soldiers. We read of it. Let's just pick this up. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah, who were building the wall, those who carried materials, did their work with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Wouldn't that be kind of, you know, you, you're, the trowel in this hand and the sword in this hand. And each of the workers wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Verse 19, then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Verse 20, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there, and God will fight for us. Let the image of this just resound. Incredible story. Every worker, a tool in one hand, a sword in the other. And if they came under attack, wherever the attack was, All you had to do was blow the trumpet. Just blow the trumpet. And you rallied around where the trumpet blew. Now here's the thing. Pity the person who doesn't, who blows the trumpet and nobody's around. And I see this in the church. Can you see this? I see this as as men and women and teenagers. We're getting into trouble. We're getting pinned down. We're feeling overwhelmed. We start to blow the trumpet But we haven't developed people around us. We're blowing and blowing the trumpet. We're saying help in our own way, but we've not developed a team of soldiers around us. You'll blow the trumpet, nobody hears you. I find that sad. I find that sad when somebody falls, when somebody messes up and makes big and 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 doesn't seem to recover. Were they blowing, did they put people around them that when they began to blow the trumpet, they were there? Or were they blowing the trumpet and they hadn't had people around them? Listen, when you blow the trumpet, you've you, you hope you've, you've got some things around you so that when the trumpet's blown, boom, they're there. They're there to help you. We have a system here in Canada I think we take for granted. It's called 911. That we would be able to hit 911, and they can track the call, and they can be there within minutes. Wouldn't it be sad if we had no faith in 911? Then why even bother hit 911? Why bother? Because nobody's coming and so many times in the body of Christ we're in a battle and in the battle together we are much more effective when i've developed the relationships within the context of my brothers and sisters so what does it look like to be in a battalion as a team well perhaps when somebody is missing after a while you look them up and find out where are they find out how they're doing how sad it is to be missing for an extended period of time and nobody knows you're missing Or perhaps we feel they don't really care. You see, if I'm a part of a smaller group, it's difficult when you're a part, it's just the context here, but when I identify in a smaller group, now my name is known. Somebody knows my name. Somebody knows my son. Somebody knows my daughter. We found this, Lori and myself, when we were part of a small group, and when one of our children was struggling, I remember when my son, and he had a period of time where he was living under a bridge. And our group praying for him. They were calling up and saying, how's he doing? What's going on with Jonas? They paced with us in life. I remember one of the situations when one of their daughters got involved with a guy and he was a drug dealer and it just was going south and she was violent and just so unlike her. We rallied together in prayer as a group. That's what you do. But if you don't have that battalion together, if you don't develop that then we disappear. I think when we've developed it, though, it looks like when someone's missing, somebody's going to reach out. Somebody's going to come alongside. Somebody's going to encourage you, as Hebrews said. Be in close enough contact to hear when someone's suffering. We hear it. We respond. Well, I was on a prayer Zoom on Tuesday morning right across eastern uh, Ontario. goes from Ottawa right over here to our church we're about as far west as that group meets and we were on a prayer call and one of the pastors she's a support pastor in a church in Ottawa and she made comments she says um, she says well, I've been enjoying I've been enjoying my skylight all week and it's just we paused. now we've been tracking with this i I with her for a bit over a year now on this zoom and it's like and then we wound it back and we said your skylight she's without hydro she has this what happened is, is something came down to put a hole in the roof that's, she was tongue-in-cheek, and her attitude was an amazing attitude. Yeah, I'm enjoying my skylight here. We have no hydro. We haven't had hydro for a couple of weeks when that big storm went through. And when that was said, because of just a Zoom contact, people were stepping in in the Ottawa region, reaching out to her. And just a very, she wasn't doing it for the reason of, help me. She just made a comment. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we were just lightheartedly making comments, and she talked about her skylight. I was thinking, that's what the body... This is what happens when the church reaches out to the church. We pray for one another. And when someone is in sin, the others rally around to help pull back the person caught in sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You can trust Him. But when you are tempted... He will provide a way out so that you can endure. And what is that way out? James chapter 5 tells us. Here's the way out. James 5, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But that righteous person wasn't you. The righteous person was somebody praying for you. They came in because of your confession. And there was victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad to be part of the family of God? So, in a spiritual relationship, we fight for each other. Families love each other no matter what, help prevent problems, We're restorative in nature. We fight for each other. I just want to close with this. Fellowship, when we fellowship, it's actually an act of worship. I want you to think about this for a minute. When you get together, maybe you come in early at nine o'clock just to fellowship with somebody. You are actively worshiping. Maybe after the service next week, when we have our picnic and we're, you know, playing a game of volleyball together, or sitting with somebody, eating together, just talking, sharing. It's not wasted time. It's actually an act of worship. First John chapter four verse eleven, dear friends. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now you can unpack that whole area of the epistle of John. And God designs love. He loves us. And he speaks through the language of love. And when he pours his love on us, it's to flow to others. I'm just not to go, give me, give me, give me, give me. But as he loves me, now I'm looking to give it away. I'm looking, how do I love others? And when I love others, I'm actually worshiping him. As it flows, as I touch somebody's life, as I get in it, when I talk and I pray with them, or I just listen to them, or I walk with them on the journey, or I pick them up and I drop them off, whatever it might be, I'm actively worshiping God. I'm worshiping him. Many of you have heard someone say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I find that pitiful. It's actually not even accurate. You can't love Jesus and not love his church because he loves his church. And if he loves his church and I refuse to love his church, then how can I love him? I don't love what he loves. If I really love him, I'm going to love what he loves. It's going to be important to me. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, let's, Let's say I didn't tell my wife ahead of time. One of the disadvantages of being a family member, you're, you're illustrated. My kids used to say, Dad, don't use me in illustration today. So my daughter who's watching live stream, you're safe, but I'm going to use Lori. For, okay, the, let's go here. Let's imagine my lovely, wonderful wife, Lori, drives to church Sunday morning. She's getting out of her vehicle out here in the parking lot. Let's imagine as she closes the door, she rips her dress up the back, but she doesn't know she ripped her dress. You're tracking with me? She doesn't know she ripped her dress. She walks into our church, and there's a bunch of people here in the church. Of course, not us. But there's a bunch of people here in the church. She doesn't know her dress is torn. She comes into church as usual. What happens? Well, let's imagine. Let's imagine there's some people who see her walk by and snicker. think that looks pretty silly. But they do nothing, say nothing, continue as if nothing has happened. Let's say other people, Lori continues to walk through our our foyer here, and other people whisper to their friends or maybe to a husband, wife, or children. They whisper, and they point out as she goes by and, and have a chuckle over. Maybe some, they point out and say, Well, if that's the way people dress around here, I'm leaving and not coming back to this place. Now, let's suppose one person walks up to my wife quietly, whispers in her ear and tells her, your dress is torn on the back. And while they're telling her that at the same time they're taking off their sweater and they're putting it around her. Okay, what just happened? What just happened? Let me break it down for you. What just happened with that person? My wife was honored by that person. Would you agree? She was honored by that one person. They honored her, not just told her, they helped her. They honored her. Let me tell you the second thing that happened there, though. I, as her husband, someone who deeply loves her, was honored as well. Because who I deeply love, if you honor her, you honor me. Now, see how this works? In the church, we're the bride of Christ. And when I let someone just go off in their own pain and suffering, I've just dishonored my Lord. Just as you would have dishonored my wife if you didn't tell her and help her. But when you tell and help, when you become part of the solution, you honor and respect her and you honor and respect those who love her. And what a beautiful picture when it comes to the body of Christ. When I care for you, when you care for me, when you care for this way, when we laterally invest in each other, It's an act of worship to him. My my father says, he's worshiping me. What did I do? I cared for somebody. I reached out and got out of my own world and I cared for them. I got involved in their life. And what did I just do? Yeah, I honored them. I did more than honor him. If I say I love him but don't do that, then I really don't love him. I just say I do. But when I actively am involved in caring for each other, the family, we are family, and I care. I'm excited for our family. I'm excited for the family we got. As I look down upon the family and those who occasionally reach us by our live stream, God is reworking the family here at Aurora Cornerstone. Have you noticed that? And I'm really pumped about it. I'm over the top excited. It didn't come overnight. Actually, it was quite discerning when we had people leave. But what got really exciting is those that didn't leave, oh my goodness, I have come to a whole new affection. (laughs) And those that have joined us, that we are family. And it's just, I really think this is important as we talk through his design for the family. It's a marvelous design. It's a healthy family. Oh, it's not always easy. As a matter of fact, sometimes family business is difficult business. But the payoff is tremendous as part of his family.